Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn why we still make pennies here in the U.S. and why science says your personality completely changes over time. You'll also hear from Stephanie Moore, author of the book First in Fly, who will teach you how similar fruit flies are to humans. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Today, we're going to take a look at the U.S. penny, which is worth one cent, but costs about one and a half cents to produce. Why do we make a coin that costs more than it's worth? Especially when, let's face it, how often do you really use pennies anyway? Well, the United States started producing pennies in 1787. They've always been worth one cent, but the composition of the coin has changed. Pennies used to be made completely from copper, but as the value of copper went up, the value of the penny went down. That's why the U.S. Mint changed the composition to what it is today, 2.5% copper and 97.5% zinc. But that value imbalance is still there. Like I mentioned before, as of 2016, the penny still costs 1.5 cents to make. Although we shouldn't be too hard on it. After all, the nickel, which is worth 5 cents, actually costs 8 cents to make. But let's put costs aside for a second. There are other pretty compelling reasons why we should just get rid of the penny. Think about this. In 1915, the penny was worth about 25 cents in today's money. Since the penny was the smallest form of currency, that meant that Americans didn't have today's buying equivalent of a penny, or a nickel or a dime for that matter, and they got along just fine. Then again, there are some people who say we should keep the penny around. One of those people is Professor Brian Dimitrovic. In a piece he wrote for Forbes, he basically says that coins were first adopted based on the value of the metal they were made of. If coins were made of something that was worth less than they were traded for, a government could overproduce money and tank the economy. But with the rise of legal tender laws and the Federal Reserve, the U.S. government can now make its citizens use the money it mints and control how much of it flows out into the economy at any time. Dimitrovic says this led to the Great Recession, which he describes as, quote, the era of the most gargantuan episode of state-sponsored monetary creation in the history of the world, end quote. He says using the penny could remind the country how to properly conduct monetary policy. The fact that it costs something to make a penny is actually an argument in favor of keeping it. Wow. Penny for your thoughts. <laughs> take, a, take a penny, leave a thought. <laughs> <laughs> what? Take a penny, leave a lesson. Wow. Wow. <laughs> It's time for the second installment in our Fruit Fly Friday miniseries. Last week, we learned that researchers study fruit flies. Okay, so so what, right? Well, we have more in common with the little buggers than just a few genes here or there. And that's according to Stephanie Moore, who's a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and the author of the book First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Here's her exchange with Ashley that might change the way you look at fruit flies. Researchers have also studied fruit fly behavior and how that relates to humans. In particular, I think one that's really cool is that they got fruit flies drunk. Yeah, so the behaviors of fruit flies, you know, they, you know, we sometimes think of them in the, within the field as little people with wings. They have a surprising um, breadth of behaviors. And yeah, one of those is that they, like us, have a long-term relationship with alcohol. They're living on rotting fruit in the wild, and so they're exposed to alcohol. Um, and they do, in fact, uh, get drunk if they have too much of it. And you can notice behaviors over time where you expose them to alcohol, and they'll essentially become addicted to alcohol or to drugs um, 
in a lab setting where they will overcome something like a bitter taste that they would normally ignore and move away from if, if that's the source of the alcohol to overcome that, that deterrent and actually go after the alcohol. So we can see some behaviors that have similarities to patterns that we would see um, that we might associate with things like addictive behavior. The thing that I just don't understand is like fruit flies have such different brains than us, if you could even call them brains, right? It's just kind of a distributed nervous system, right? We definitely call it a brain. They do have a, a brain, a central nervous system, and then they have more peripheral systems, you know, that extend out to control leg movements and stuff. So it's more analogous, more similar to us than one might, you know, immediately uh, think is, is the case. Um, they also have a beating heart and equivalent of liver and kidneys and some other kind of features in this, this tiny fly has these similarities. Um, and in terms of the brain, uh, I would, nature is very uh, efficient in how things have evolved. So they solve a problem once, they're going to apply that solution over and over. And so it is a brain that has developed ways to do things like respond to a looming predator and jump away or, you know, drink alcohol and have some changes. So the the brain is surprisingly complex and yet it, it's clearly more simple than ours. And that gives us an opportunity. It can be easier to understand, you know, if you're trying to build a, a big building, you might build a shed first and learn what, what goes involved in doing that um, before you start building a, a house or a skyscraper. But the tools and the components are very similar. So we're learning from the fly brain how the different cell types interact with one another, how they wire up and, you know, how they make contact with legs and control movement and other types of behaviors. And then we can use the, the tools that are developed for that kind of research and what we've actually learned about the biology in that research. And then we can use that to ask new and, and focused questions about brains in, in more sophisticated organisms like us. Again, Stephanie Moore is a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and the author of the book, First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. You can find links to the book and more in today's show notes. And next Friday, she'll be back with more on what we know thanks to fruit fly research. Today's episode is paid for by NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try to sneak across the tracks. Well, don't. Ever. Yeah, trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be. And they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal, and what used to be you, well, better not to think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop even if it sees you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way, and you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. The longest-running personality study ever suggests that your personality completely transforms over time. As in, you are a totally different person when you're 14 than you are when you're, say, 77. So don't worry if you feel like you aren't like you used to be. And this is according to a study spanning 63 years. It comes from Matthew Harris and his colleagues at the University of Edinburgh, who started the study in 1950 and wrapped it up in 2012. The study started out with 1,209 Scottish 14-year-olds. And back in 1950, those teenagers rated the following six personality traits. Self-confidence, perseverance, stability of moods, conscientiousness, 
originality, and desire to learn. Fast forward to 2012, and these teenagers were around 77 years old, and 174 of them agreed to be re-examined. The subjects rated themselves on the six original criteria, and they had a close friend or relative rate them too. As it turns out, the subjects had developed more than just wrinkles, they had also formed brand new personalities. The researchers found no significant correlation between their ratings at age 14 and age 77. The study notes that the longer the time interval, the weaker the relationship between the two selves tends to be, meaning you're a lot more different between the ages of 12 and 77 than you are between the ages of, say, 12 and 42. The study notes that after 63 years, there's hardly any relationship at all. It might be strange to think of yourself as an entirely new human at 77, but look on the bright side. At least by then, you'll probably have outgrown your teenage angst, or so we hope. How would your 14-year-old self see you right now, Cody? My 14-year-old self would think I'm awesome. (laughs) Nice. Every time I sit down to watch Star Trek with my wife and it's her idea, I just look at her and say, 14-year-old me is high-fiving me so hard right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's all for today, but you can keep learning all weekend on curiosity.com. This weekend, you'll learn about how to overcome your brain's tendency to fight weight loss, unexpected things libraries offer other than books, why the largest natural sand dune on the East Coast is such a big deal, how you can develop a better sense of direction, and more. If there's something else you're curious about, send us your question. You can find our contact info and links to everything we do on our podcast website, curiositydaily.com. Come hang out with us again Sunday on the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Have a great weekend. And stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.